I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. It's uh, good to see you again, Ken. (laughs) And tell me, how's your week been? You know, I've been thinking back over what we've covered so far, and I now understand why the nine-step formula you developed is so important. Because everything seemed to fit so neatly into one of those nine steps. So I wonder if it might be worthwhile returning to step one, how to filter your properties. And I realize your app is not far away, but I thought you might just explain how the income yield and capital growth vary between the three sectors, office, industrial and retail. Yeah, it's interesting, Ken. You picked on the the three sectors there, and it's not quite as simple an answer and straightforward to provide. You've got to understand that there can be a a, a sort of grey area, like a showroom, for example, is part retail, part industrial. But let's stick to the three sectors, and we're going to ignore things like hotels and accommodation and other things like that. Now, as I said, it's, it's not all that straightforward. So what I might do is to put together a little table which I'll give you to put up under this podcast so that as I'm talking, people can click on that and hopefully that'll simplify what I'm or, or make what I'm saying come together and, and make sense. If we start with retail, generally, and, you, and I can only talk long-term yields, things will change, economic circumstances and ups and downs, but long-term yields, generally retail falls in the 5 to 7% income yield, net income yield. Now, in a good shopping centre, it'll be closer to 5 On the peripheral centres, closer to 7 Or if it's a short-term lease, sometimes you get up in that higher range. So generally, it's in the 5 to 7% range. Now, if you move into offices, your smaller strata offices, which we've covered in earlier podcasts, will be around the 7%, sometimes slightly less, 6 and 3 quarter, but around 7%. And the more established offices, which are slightly larger, probably around 8%. Again, that can get slightly higher than that, depending on their age and location, but generally it's in that range. Once again, industrial property, your range is between 8 and 9%. If it's older or poorly located, it can get up around 10%. But generally, those are your income ranges. Now, what's interesting is that if you now move to the the retail capital growth, I've reversed them around eight to six. And the reason for that is that what I've found is over the long term that your combined yield, net income and capital growth for all three sectors seems to come out at about 13% a combination of income and capital growth. So if you add your 5 and 8%, you get 13 for retail. If you add your 7% income and 6% capital growth, again, you get 13% per annum. And I guess what the market is saying is they are prepared to accept for retail a 5% net yield because they know that long-term it's going to be an 8% capital growth. So they'll accept a slightly lower income yield because they are compensated with a higher capital growth. Now, with offices, again, the same continues. If you're getting a higher 
net return of the 8%, then a 5% capital growth is more likely what you will receive. And likewise with industrial property, if you're getting a 9% yield, saying the income, I require a higher income yield because I'm not going to get as high a capital growth. Now some people get bent out of shape and go for industrial property, particularly if, if they can buy it well and they say, look, I've, I've got a 10 and a half, even an 11% yield is terrific. Well, what they find is that all they're doing is buying an income stream because the property is either not well located, is older, and therefore the capital growth is likely to be 2 to 2.5%. You've got a great yield, but you haven't really got much growth. So you've got to see it as a balance. And therefore, it's not always great to achieve a high yield from a point of view of net income because that means that generally speaking the market looks at it and says that your capital growth is not going to be as great. Once again you might not like to, if you're going for capital growth, you get to the point where the income yield is too low, you end up too much negatively geared and so yes you might get some capital growth handsome down the track but in the meantime, you need to foot the bill for any shortfall as far as the cash flow is concerned. Right now, I know you have a personal preference among these sectors. Would you perhaps like to explain what it is and why you hold that view? Yeah, Ken, I do have a personal preference, and this probably comes back to your long-term goals and predictability and, I guess, being able to sleep at night. And my preference as far as the three sectors, is offices first, industrial second, and at the moment retail a distant third. Now in the table that I'll provide, what that are long-term yields. Now you, there will be fluctuations. Now for example, the global financial crisis has impacted adversely on the retail sector. Your capital growth is not there because you're not seeing rental growth. In fact, tenants are struggling. Therefore, on rent review, there's no increase. In some cases, there's even had to be a rent reduction. And so your capital growth is down. Probably your yields are coming up closer to the 7%, even for quite good property, because people are saying that they're not going to be getting the you know 8 and 9% capital growth that they've experienced. So therefore, they require a higher yield. So... Retail at the moment, in my view, is fragile. The tenants are struggling. Consumer confidence as far as retail sales has not improved, whereas business confidence has. You you read it's the highest it's been for three years. And I think we discussed the fact that a change of government would, would see the business activity and, and sentiment increase, which it has. And that probably reinforces why I prefer the office sector at the moment, rather than the retail. Industrial is starting to move. Uh, I recently notified you of, of these um, industrial property, small industrial properties in Moorabbin, which certainly a good purchase. They're going to be architect designed and you can get in at a pretty attractive level. Now, the returns there, because of the smaller nature, the smaller ones, will certainly be at the 8%, I suspect, probably slightly under that because around 400000 there's not much you can get. There's a lot of competition. But that will also mean that there's a lot of buyers when the time comes to sell. 
So you're likely to see good growth in things like that. So it's a balancing act. You've got to balance off your, your having a decent commercial yield, income yield, and also long-term growth down the track. Do you see that continuing? And if so, for how long? Yeah, look, I do see it continuing. As to how long, I would think probably 2019, maybe 20. Uh, you've got a... We're really coming off the bottom with as a result of the global financial crisis. We're in the upswing and all the sectors are going to start to move together. So I see the the business confidence continuing. I see good rental growth over the next five years so that you have a strong underpinning market from the point of view of the tenants. The economic situation will get better. As we have discussed in the past, interest rates do not have a great effect on office property, office investments. They do affect retail, which is one of the reasons why it's a distant third, and to a lesser extent industrial property, because that is mainly distribution. But offices are unaffected by interest rate increases, and therefore I see the increased business confidence going forward. America will sort itself out and start to become one of the engine drivers for the world economy. The Chinese economy is enjoyed a soft landing and, and will rebound strongly. And generally, the European market will sort itself out. And so I see looking forward the next five or so years as providing you with good, solid, strong, underpinning growth. Now, I think the recent, I think it was Price Waterhouse gave an accounting overview of, of the growth states. And I think Victoria came out the best. It showed a good, strong underpinning of activity in all the sectors that are necessary to, to show substance and strength throughout a recovery. So I see that as it. Now, obviously, the mining states are a little bit fragile and not probably going to see as much substance as far as the growth. There will be spikes occurring, and if you're in the right spot at the right time, you can probably take advantage of it. But over the longer term, I think you're probably seeing Victoria and New South Wales as your two states or two areas in which you really ought to concentrate your investment activities. I know it seems a fair way off at the moment, but what strategies should our listeners have in place to be sure to extract their hard-earned growth before the market turns? Yeah, look, it might seem a fair way off when I talk about 2019, 2020, but that doesn't mean you become complacent. Now, one of the first things I say to my clients is that when you buy a property, and it may need some work, not immediately, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't start to t undertake those trick-ups or improvements, adding value almost straight away. Because I like to have the properties that I have an involvement with in ready-to-sell condition after 12 months or within the first 12 months. The ready-to-sell condition can relate to physical improvements, but also, if the property is such that it can be further subdivided, either a single floor into two tenancies or 
a building into separate titles for each of the floors and maybe within the floors themselves. But those sort of things, while they're not expensive to achieve, do take time. I mean, they can take anywhere from six to nine months, depending on any issues that need to be addressed along the way. Now, by the time you undertake the necessary works, do the survey plans, lodge them with the titles officers, I said it could be six to nine months. So the time to do it is when you're not in a hurry. And so that when you have the need to sell or choose to sell, there's not this mad rush to get everything done and sorted out and to get the property in tip-top shape. So you do all the the hard yards in the first six to, to nine months. So at the end of 12 months, if the need comes and there is a reason to sell, whether it's voluntary or, or, or forced upon you, that the property is in top shape. Now, that means you then just tweak it along the way and make sure that if there's any little painting jobs that need to be done that relate to you as the, as the landlord as opposed to the tenant, that they can be undertaken and keep the property in top shape. So that's as far as the, the things that are, are under your control. Now, the next thing you want to look at is if the market is going to peak in, let's say, the end of 2019, you need to look at either with the property you have already or the ones you're seeking to purchase, is the actual timing of the market rent reviews. As I mentioned before, I see the market increasing as far as the rent and tenant demand going forward. And so ideally what you would like to have is a market review either at the end of 2018 or the beginning of 2019. And then At that point, uh, ideally, or or an exercise of option at that point, so that when you come into, say, the middle of 2019, you have effectively a brand new rent reflecting market, but you have a period of the lease running at least three years forward. Now, it's at that point you have to make a conscious decision as to whether you hold the property, continue to hold the property, or you sell the property. Now, there's no reason why you shouldn't hold it, but what I'm suggesting to you is that unless your lease runs through to probably 2022 or 2023, in other words, you can straddle when the market peaks and still have a a tenant, I would suggest you would be better placed to sell the property because you're selling it with a fresh rent, three years still to run, a rising market, And sometimes the blue sky is worth more to you than the reality. And so it's better to allow someone else to come in and reap the benefits of your good work in getting the property in in tip-top shape, getting a great rent on review, and then offer them the the security of at least three years from the middle of 2019 so that they can buy in a rising market and feel really confident about it. And that way, you're going to extract top dollar from all your good work. And Ken, before you ask me whether I've got any tips this week, I thought of something after we spoke last week on negotiating, and that was I covered in answering the question about how to frame an offer the various components that I would include in that, and there were four or five of those things there. One of the things 
people might wonder is, is why do I have so many variables? You see, I mentioned that most people set out and only really focus on the price. Now, the difficulty you've got with that is that if you're only discussing and negotiating the price, someone has to win and someone has to lose. And so it's far better to have four or five variables in the air. And that's why I mentioned about, yes, you've got price, but you've got your deposit, you've got the uh, settlement terms, the due diligence period. And sometimes you can make outrageous claims or requests in those other areas, which distracts the vendor from the actual price itself. Yes, they want to price, but they want to sort out the settlement, bring it in closer and make it shorter, shorten the due diligence period, get more in the initial deposit. And so while they're focusing on those sort of things, you can then negotiate on the price and get a much better deal. And what's important is that you you need to understand and find out what's on the vendor's agenda. Now, you have an agenda, you have a plan of what you want to achieve, both in price and so forth. And so does the vendor. In all my time as a negotiator, I have never seen two agendas the same. Yes, they might have similar items, but invariably they're arranged in a different order. So the vendor will have his order or her order, and you will have yours. So by making an offer with all these balloons in the air, depending on the response, you are better able to gauge what's important and what is on the vendor's agenda. So it has two purposes. One, you're not just negotiating on price, but two, it immediately, for once you have experience as a negotiator, can read between the lines as to how they respond to your initial offer because effectively, if you've got four or five areas, if they're happy to leave the settlement out on a long period and don't argue about that, well, that tells you something straight away. They'd rather get their price than worry about the extended settlement. The settlement might sh- suit you because then you can you can say to them, well, look, okay, 120 days, we'll settle on that. I'll agree to your price, but I want possession of the property within 30 days. And that way you have access to the property because you may have, it may be a vacant property. You're able to do some quick renovation and work, tenant the property during the 120-day settlement period and thereby arrange your finance based on a fully let property rather than a vacant property. So there are all sort of advantages that you can work towards. So that probably is one of the, the best tips I could give you because, as I said, once you focus solely on price, everyone feels that they're compromising and in the end, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Whereas if you've got the other items, yes, you might win on price, but they feel they've won, they've shortened the settlement They've shortened the due diligence period. They've got more as an upfront deposit. And so in their mind, that compensates for the fact that they've actually capitulated on the price. And the secret is, as we've always said, is to walk away with everyone feeling that it's a win-win situation. Now, they mightn't have won everything. In fact, they might have conceded quite a lot on the price, but they feel they have wound you back and extracted the best deal they can from you. Okay, it wasn't quite the price, but they got you back on the on the other aspects of your initial proposal, which can sometimes be quite outlandish in those other areas, provided the whole package when negotiated together ends up providing both parties with a win-win 
situation. I feel this has been rather useful. So thanks for filling in some of the gaps. Anyway, um, can we continue further again next week? Yeah, I, I look forward to doing that, Ken. <laughs>